Fantastic. Um, but it's good to be with you guys. I'm not doing a weird fashion statement. I hurt my finger, and I'll just get it out of the way now. Dislocated it, doing something really cool like trying to pull a grown man's flag in flag football. Got caught in his shirt, dislocated, but I, got to, I put it back straight because it didn't look right, and it went back, which was cool, and now I'm taped up. And so if I get a little dramatic and you're starting to be like, what is he doing with that thing? Now you know. I don't know what's going on there. But we have a lot of work to do. This is a big Sunday. I've been kind of waiting for this Sunday for a long time. R really, I would say about eight months. This is Union Sunday. Um, it's where we're going to finish off our spiritual formation series, um, where we are, will, will now be very good at understanding what spiritual formation or discipleship is so that we can set ourselves to the task of going through this process and allowing the Lord to continue to work in our lives and ultimately so that we can get a hold of somebody else that the Lord might be bringing into our life and helping them be discipled because Jesus wanted us to make disciples. Um, so we'll get to that. But um, we do have starting point luncheon after third service. So if you are new to the church, you're, you're uh, more than welcome to come back. We'll have a meal and, and you'll get to know some more details about the church. But just in case you can't come back because you came to first service. Um, there are a lot of different ways to get plugged into Living Streams that are about to happen in February. So please check in. Women's Retreat's one of them. We have Explore Track, which is basically like kind of new to the church. It's nine weeks of getting to know other people new to the church, getting to know the church more, getting to know the pastors um, and all of that. We have life groups that are about to launch, uh, some new life groups. Um, we have missions trips you can sign up for. So if you are already in a great community of, of believers that know you and you know them well, if you're already serving in some way in Phoenix or in the, in the local church and uh, you're just looking for a Sunday morning church, we are happy to have you here and um, all of that. But if you are someone that doesn't have good community outside of this context, you aren't serving the Lord in some way or not quite sure what that even means, and you're just coming on Sunday mornings, we're not happy. No happy. Um, I mean, obviously, if that's a starting point, that's good for you, but, but we really think that the, the, the life of, of Christ that, that he's calling us into, it does require more than one hour a week on a Sunday morning of getting together with believers. So just want to emphasize that, and uh, let's jump in. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 33, because we're again going to have Moses help us understand this whole concept of spiritual formation, but we also have some PowerPoint slides for all the business folks in the room. Um, and those in school, I guess, you love these things. Spiritual formation is the process of moving from being less Christ-like to more Christ-like. Again, Jesus loves you just the way you are. When you come to him, he died on a cross for you. He paid the price for you, not when you were all together, but when you were at your worst. But he loves you enough to not just want to bless you in that place. He wants to take you from that place and move you into a place where you will be a blessing as well as be blessed. So being more Christ-like is what he wants for us. Um, over the years, we've had lots of people do this um, in, in church history around the world, and we have the scriptures to teach us, and there's these certain kind of stages that, that have been helpful um, for us. So you can pop the stages up, stage slide, and uh, it's darkness, awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. These are stages in this journey that we have with Christ that, that seem to mark different points at which God is trying to do something in our lives. 
It's not just that we say yes to Jesus, we take his hand, and then everything is just kind of like this high, happy experience until we get to heaven. Or, as some believers seem to think sometimes, it's not just this, ah, experience until we get to heaven, and then we're like, ah. But there's this kind of cycle that God takes us through, that he's trying to do a work in us. It's almost like seasons that are so necessary in our life to produce what he's trying to produce in us. And so darkness, we've described, if you want to go back and and, uh, look at that, we did darkness, awakening, and purgation all three weeks ago. Um, oh no, two weeks ago, and then last week we talked about illumination, which is another stage, and so today we're talking about union, union. And another thing, this uh, kind of cyclical thing, there's this diagram that we've put up there that's been helpful, and we'll probably unpack this more as we go along, but um, you are either being spiritually formed into the image of Christ, or you are being spiritually formed uh, outside the image of Christ, away from the image of Christ. Every day that's happening. Every day we are being formed one way or another by what we take in, by what we do, by the way that we think, and all of that. And uh, in our world, we've seen that indulgence leads to idolatry, which leads to disintegration. And then um, God wants to interrupt that and lead us into spiritual formation with Jackson's 6WDD, <laughs> um, where we can go through these seasons of purgation, which leads to illumination, which ultimately leads to a greater union with Christ. So what in the world do we mean by union? I actually said that to someone the other day. I was like, well, I'm going to teach on union. And he actually spent his whole life working in some industry where they had a union. And he was like, when you say union, now you got to explain that because I go a totally different place. We got to fight and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, anyway, so we're going to define union in a couple different ways. We're going to unpack it. And then we're going to finish our service with communion. Huh? Huh? See how good we are? (laughs) Um, And uh, we're really going to try and spend some time in that place, in that place of union. So let's get our slide to define union, Um, a scripture from the book of John. This is what Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. This is the whole point of Jesus going to the cross. This is what Jesus longs for you more than anything else. When you come to Jesus to pray and ask him about your finances or your health, he hears you and he cares about those things, but that's not the most important thing. This is his prayer for you, right here. My prayer is not for these alone, the disciples he had right there, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Again, this is audacious blasphemy if anybody else would say anything like this but Jesus, who truly is one with the Father. That that triune, trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that was before anything else was and always will be. Jesus' plan for us is that we would get to participate in that. We would get to know the true love, the true joy, 
the true oneness and unity expressed in that Trinitarian God. Not that we become gods, but that we get to sit at the table and eat the same food and have the same conversation. This is Jesus' prayer for you. Whether you think you're special or not, whether you think you've blown it or not, that's what Jesus wants. That's why Jesus created you. That's why Jesus has been knocking on the door of your heart ever since the day you were born. That's why you've experienced common grace. Because he's trying to lead you into union with himself and the Father. It's pretty wild stuff. So that's union. Union um, is also defined in another place. Um, I don't know if you guys have been going through this book that we handed out a few weeks ago through our fasting and prayer season, but it's actually, I've been, it's been good. It's been real, real good. Um, and there's a couple different ways union's described in here. I just want to throw out there real quick. Union, um, according to Robert Mulholland of A Roadmap for Spiritual Formation, he says, uh, in union, we worry little about reputation, personal success, things, or comfort. So again, if our times with the Lord involve those things, we're probably not really experiencing union. And then in another place, um, Dallas Willard, he, he calls union, uh, uh, the way he uses the word abiding. Because Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. So another way to describe union is abiding in God. Abiding in God. He says abiding, or union, is like inhaling the reality of the kingdom of God, especially through internalizing the words of God and then putting these words into action. Abiding is the source of our love, joy, peace, and all of our fruitfulness. So we would think labor is the source of all our fruitfulness, but he says, no, abiding is the source of all our fruitfulness. It's a little backwards. It's a little anti-American Protestant work ethic, all of that. Union. Um, There's a couple other guys that have described union. There's this guy named Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard. Sounds cool. Um, He prayed this one time. He says, Father in heaven, what is man without thee? What is all that he knows, his vast accumulation though it be, but a chipped fragment if he does not know thee? And he didn't have the internet. That was kind of cool. You see that? I could do like a point. I didn't even have to touch the paper. I feel like I'm using the force a little bit right there, like move the paper without touching. What is all his striving? Could it even encompass the whole world? But it is just a half-finished work if he does not know you. You the one who art one thing and who art all. And basically he comes up with this philosophy that he talks about purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And, and in his language, he talks about willing, willing the good. So willing the good, and the G is capitalized on the good. It's, it's basically this concept of union. He didn't use the word union, but it's the same thing. That, that, that this pursuit of being in union with God, willing to be with God, willing, willing the good that God is and the good that God does. If that can be the singular focus of our will, we found purity of heart. But then he goes on to unpack that and get ready. If you think you're doing well, you're not going to think so hot after this, all right? So he says, he says it's good for us to start to will, you know, what God wants, to will God's will in our lives and in the world. 
He says, but then we have to watch out for the lure of reward. The good is one thing, the reward is another. So we start to will the good, but in willing the good, we're actually willing the reward that comes when we will the good. So we're actually willing two things. And we've lost purity of heart. We've lost union, if that makes sense. We want to be with God, but we want to be with God because of the reward, not, not just the one who gives the reward. So we will two things. Fear of punishment. We will the good, but out of fear of punishment. We will the good, but we also will not losing our reputation, losing our comfort, or our status. We're willing the good so that we don't have to experience the bad. Now we're willing two things, and we've lost purity of heart, and we've lost union. Uh, uh, divided heart. Then he calls this the egocentric service of the good. A man wills the good simply in order that he may score the victory. Wills the good and wills to get credit for willing the good. So he likes what people think about him when he's willing the good. So he wills the good and wills the blessing or favor of the people. And he's now a divided heart and he's lost the purity of heart. And union is not what he's experiencing. And these aren't bad things. I mean, if, again, it's like we're in progress. There actually is said of this union concept that there are very few people who ever really experience a life of union. And I don't like that. But it's, somebody said it, so I, it's, it might be true. But what, I've, what I feel like I've experienced is, is I think I've experienced moments of union in my life where I could say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. That was different, but then it's gone so fast. It's like immediately I start to go, I like this, and then I start to will something else, not just that, and it's gone. But the goal is that we would spend, we, we would get there more often and maybe stay longer, I think is kind of what, what my pursuit is at this point. But union. Then the last problem to our union is the commitment to a certain degree. So this has the good on its side and that it wills the good, but it wills it weakly. Basically, wills the good to a point, but then will some, wills something else as soon as it gets hard or something more convenient or flashy comes along. And so it's willing to a certain extent, but really it's not a full commitment to will the good, to union, and we go right out. And I feel like that's kind of more what happens to me. I'll be like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Oh, what's that? That's cool. You know, and then I'm over here. And it's like the Lord's kind of got to bring me back, bring me back. So I think I'm trying to give you a picture of union because we're going to go somewhere and be able to make some application for us. Um, but just trying to get a picture there. So now let's go to Exodus and see what Moses can teach us about union. Exodus 33 says this, um, verse 12 through 23. I think we got it on the screen. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied. Remember, he's in this illumination stage where he just talks to the Lord, and the Lord talks back to him, and he has confidence in that. And the Lord says, my presence We'll go with you, and I'll give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to him, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So you can almost see this. Remember, remember we talked about a few weeks ago when Moses was at the burning bush and there was this bantering. It was like God was like, I want you to do this. And Moses was like, well, and the Lord is like, do this. And he's like, no, please, Lord, don't be mad at me. But what? And he was kind of just haggling with the Lord and, 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 and not wanting to do what God wants him to do because he was just a little burning bush God. And now in this point, he's, he's been through Egypt. He's realized that God knows the depths of his heart. He's been through the Red Sea. They've been in the wilderness. They've now been to Mount Sinai where, where Moses has gone up into the mountain and this little burning bush god is now burning an entire mountain. And he's just conquered all the gods of Egypt that Moses, Moses grew up with. And so Moses is like, okay, I know you're not a little burning bush god. I know you are the one god. And he's up in, in, in this cloud or in this, this burning mountain fire cloud. And he's been up there for 40 days. And now he's having another kind of back and forth conversation with God. Where he's saying, God, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere without your presence. And God says, okay, my presence will go with you. But he's like, but God, I don't want to go anywhere without your presence. And God's like, I'm going to give you my presence. And then really you can see why Moses was having trouble. Because this is really what Moses wanted to ask. He says in verse 18, now show me your glory. And the word glory there in the Hebrew is chabad. And it means substance. It means weight. Basically, Moses is saying, can I see you? Like you're speaking to me all the time. I, I can see your presence in the cloud and the fire. But he said, I want to see you. It's a big moment. He wants greater intimacy with God. And this is what he asks. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Isn't that beautiful? The substance of God is goodness. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. If you skip through a few verses to Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So this is a culmination. You can see in Moses, we talked about how Moses was in darkness as he was raised in Egypt and he didn't know who he was. But then at some point there was this awakening that began in him where he realized he was a Hebrew and he was an Egyptian and he went to look at the, what was happening to the Hebrews and he saw an Egyptian that was, that was beating a Hebrew and he, he, he just had this moment of real kind of passionate rage and he killed the Egyptian. 
But that caused such a conflict in his own soul, conflict in Hebrews, conflict with Pharaoh that he had to flee into Midian. And he was out there kind of going through this process where God was visiting him. God was stirring in him through his own passions, but also through external things. And Moses was going through what I would call a long season of awakening until it all culminated at this burning bush where God said, Moses, I want to talk to you about the oppression of the Hebrew people. And Moses is like, well, I've been running away from that for a long time. I don't want to talk about that. And I want to talk to you about the Egyptians and what I want to do with them. And Moses, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be the deliverer. And Moses was like, but awakening happened. He awakened to the reality of what was going on inside of him, awakening to the reality of who this God is. But at this point, the God that, that he's talking to is just a burning bush God out in the middle of the desert. And when Moses says to him, what's your name? God says, I am. That's my name. Vague. Separation a little bit is what it feels like in there. I am. And so Moses goes through this whole process. Now we're this many chapters later. And what does God do? He says, Moses, I'm going to tell you my name. And he doesn't say, I am. He says, I'm the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving, punishing, all these things. And Moses is so overcome with this moment of union where he's getting to experience the presence of God. He's getting a deeper revelation of the heart of God that he falls down and worships. And his prayer at this point, Moses' prayer at this point is not, Lord, take us to the promised land. Not, Lord, can you give me this or can you give me that? Not, Lord, can you help me lead these people? Not, Lord, can you make these people not so annoying? He says, Lord, could you, could you just stay with us? A shift has happened. Now, please catch this, my friends. Please catch this, because I've been chewing on this for a long time, and I don't really know exactly what to do with it, but I think it's huge. In this moment, Moses realized that the prize was not the promised land. In fact, at this point, Moses doesn't even care about the promised land at all, even though that's been the objective all along. He's realized that the presence of God is the prize. It's the objective. It's the whole thing. And to be in the presence of God in the middle of the wilderness is way richer than to be in the promised land without the presence of God. And we have a society right now that we live in that is clamoring and fighting for utopia. We're spending billions of dollars, we're all of our best people, fighting to try and create some sort of happy existence, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. They've kind of changed all the words to now say, we want progressivism. And really, it's just another mask for the same thing. We want the promised land without the presence of God. It's what humanity has always wanted. We want the promised land without the presence of God, but the problem is there is no such thing as a promised land without the presence of God. We want what the giver gives without wanting the giver. 
and it's a dead end. It's chasing our tails. It's worthless and futile. But Moses figured it out. He said, God, don't send us forward. Don't make us go to that promised land if you're going to hang out here on this mountain. He realized that the greatest thing, the greater thing, is God's presence. But here's the beautiful thing. God's like, I'll go with you. In fact, Moses, I'm going. And sure enough, that cloud, I mean, if you get further into it, at one point, the cloud was going into the promised land, and the people were scared of the giants, so they didn't go with the cloud. And they missed out. And then they wandered for another 38 years until that generation passed away because of unbelief. Where Joshua and Caleb were like, hey, the cloud's going. Why don't we go? Because the cloud's the whole deal. Remember, Joshua was the one that stayed in the tent even after Moses left in the presence of God. We got to understand the presence of God is what it's all about. So that's Moses' picture. I want to give you a New Testament verse, Philippians 3, 7 through 14, just in case you're like, well, that's Old Testament. It's not New Testament. Well, whatever, it's both. But what, what, this is what Paul says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever promised land I had was just nothing. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through Christ, through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now check this. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And what is the prize? This is where it gets a little tricky. Right now, the prize that you're seeking God for might be deliverance from an addiction. But that's not the prize. And I say that fearfully in some ways. Right now, you might be seeking the Lord for the prize of, you know, a, a marriage restored. That's not the prize. Even though it's a great thing, it's a wonderful thing. You found yourself seeking the good for the reward, and you have a divided heart. We got to seek the Lord because He's the prize. And what happens out of that is the good fruit shows up. If we can find ourselves seeking the Lord, seeking His presence, and abiding there. Jesus said, if you want to bear good fruit, you remain in me, and my word remains in you. The striving will get us nowhere. Think about Moses trying to deliver the Hebrew people before he had the presence of God. He killed an Egyptian. Nothing happened. But then when he goes with the presence of God at the right time, 
in the right way, he's able to experience a deliverance for the people of Israel that we're still talking about today. And to bring it home to us a little bit more, remember the story of Mary, Mary and Martha, where Jesus is in their home. It's Mary and Martha. Jesus is in their home. He's hanging out. He's come over for dinner or whatever. And at some point in the night, Martha comes out of the kitchen and is like, Jesus, would you tell Mary to get in here and help me with the dishes? She's frustrated. She's been in there going, doing the dishes because she wants to be with Jesus. But she also knows the dishes need to get done. And Mary's just out there being with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the greater. Now, you Enneagram 9s, watch out real quick. I need to talk to you for a second. Because you're like, yeah, let's just chill, you know? This isn't about we should never do dishes. I wish it was. <laughs> this has nothing to do with whether or not you should do di Dishes need to get done. But, but the greater is to do what Jesus is doing. Track with me here. Jesus, probably a little bit later, was going to do the dishes. And Martha could have been with Jesus doing the dishes, choosing the greater thing. But at this moment, Jesus was not doing the dishes. Jesus was knowing there was, this was a time where we just need to be together and sit and enjoy this. And Martha was supposed to enter into that, but she was bothered by many things, including her own sister. <laughs> but I bet you in a little bit, Jesus was going to move into the kitchen and do the dishes. And then the greater thing would have been, let's be with Jesus doing the dishes. Brother Lawrence, there's a book he wrote on, uh, called Practicing the Presence, and he was a dishwasher in a monastery. And he wrote this book that's been so captivating for so many people because he would practice the presence of God while washing the dishes. And people used to come from all over the world to watch him wash dishes in this monastery because there was something so beautiful about it. So Jesus washes dishes. Please understand that. Christianity is not about just sitting around and kind of playing harps and worship is not that. Worship is finding out what Jesus is doing and doing what Jesus is doing. Finding out where Jesus is and going there. And sometimes Jesus is saying to you Americans and me, hey, you're bothered by many things. You need to learn to be still and experience my presence. And then there's other times where Jesus is saying, hey, you, you've been sitting around experiencing my presence, and that's great, but I've been gone for a little while, <laughs> and you're still hanging out with what you think is my presence or what was my presence, but right now I'm over here rescuing people who are getting you know, into sex trafficking and slavery, and I'm wanting to barge into this door and set these girls free, so where are you? Because that's where Jesus is. And sometimes he's over with the poor. Oftentimes he's with the poor sitting there not necessarily to fix them all the time either but to love them and support them and sometimes he's in church and sometimes he's <laughs> sometimes he's he's on to the next thing and we're still having a great church service 
You see, you see what I'm saying? We got to choose the greater. And the greater is being with Jesus wherever he's doing. Jesus said it of himself in John chapter 5. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. When he was defending healing someone on the Sabbath. Because they were saying on the Sabbath, God rests. And Jesus said, my Father is always working. He's always working on something. And the reason I healed this guy today on, in, on the Sabbath was because I saw my father doing it. And I want to be where he is. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for teaching us. We thank you for doing some surgery on our hearts and minds. We thank you for flipping our paradigms upside down sometimes. And Lord, this is, a, this is a big one. Please help us not miss this. Lord, I pray that right now as we prepare our hearts for communion, that we would be able to see what you're up to, both in our lives and in our world. Pray that you would put pictures right in the minds of each one of us that would cause us to know what you're up to, and you'd give us the courage to do it.